All right. If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, starting again at the first verse of Hebrews chapter 6. We return to this passage as we continue our examination of it. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come, if they were to fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned." Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day, that you would teach us, Lord, to understand the truth of your word, and that you would teach us, God, to take it to heart. Teach us, Lord, that we are called to be faithful, that we are called to be earnest, and let none of us, Father, take in your word without being changed by it. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. For his glory we pray. Amen. There is an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. It is at least partially true. Familiarity without appreciation certainly breeds contempt. And perhaps nowhere is this more evident than in the gospel-inoculated culture in which we live. This culture has so much sprinkling of the word of God that it doesn't even recognize it when it speaks the truth of God's word. Out of context, it may be. In fact, we're so inundated with the truth of God's word that many will attribute things to that word that it never said, and when actually it says the opposite. For instance, how many of you have heard somebody say something like this? The good book says the Lord helps those who help themselves. You know the good book doesn't say that. That's not scripture. That's Ben Franklin, about as far from the good book as you can get. The problem is that scripture teaches what it teaches, God helps the weak, the broken, the helpless, those who cry for mercy, not those who think they can do it on their own. So where does this false idea come from? It comes from a casual level of contact with the word. It comes from exposure to the word with never taking it in. And that creates a level of spiritual truth that's just enough to harden the heart and mind rather than enough to soften the soul. It is truly inoculation in the truest sense of the word, when somebody becomes immune to what they have been inoculated against. It is the act of producing immunity to the truth by frequent small doses, and it begins with the act of tasting. So the writer of Hebrews says that a person who has tasted the word is in danger if that's all they've done, right? So I want you to think with me about what it means to taste something. Um, it's It's a limited thing. Right? Um, I've, I've never been to one, but I've seen film of wine tastings, and 
People go into a room filled with, with bottles of wine and little glasses, and they put it in their mouth and swish it around and then spit it out, which would be my reaction to wine, but I digress. They, they, they take it in their mouth, they taste it, and then they put it out because they don't want it in them, right? They want to clear the palate for something else or somebody else. This is the idea of tasting that the writer of Hebrews is putting out here. Somebody tastes the word. They put it in their mouth. They swish it around for a while. They get the flavor of it, and then they go, I don't want it, right? So if you think about this from the idea of what it means to just taste of the word, it's somebody who's just casually taking it in. It's a transitory thing. It's an experimental thing. There's no nutritional value. There's no real gain. There's no taking it in. There's no building of the life based upon it. There is nothing whatsoever which the word contributes to them. It is in, out, gone. There may be some sort of mental memory wherein they might remember something that somebody says. Or they might grab a hold of a scriptural truth and remember what the Bible says, but completely misapply it. Don't judge me is a great example of that. Every unbeliever in the world knows the Bible says, don't judge. Well, that's not exactly what the Bible says, but it does say those words with a bunch of others around it, which alters the meaning of what it says. However, I digress, they grab what they grab, right? This idea of tasting is something that is very, very common in this culture because there has been so much Bible present. I would wager that even still today, in most homes, there is at least one Bible. Even homes where they've never been to church, they've never honored God in any way, they've never cared about God whatsoever, if you dug around on the shelves, you would find at least one Bible, at the very least the New Testament. Probably never been opened, probably never been read, but it just points to the fact that there is a whole lot of the Bible available to people in this culture. And there's been a whole lot of Bible tossed around at them, and they've taken in small doses. And it's had the effect of hardening their heart, although the Scripture does tell us that tasting of God can teach us that He is good, right? Psalm, uh, Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him, right? So tasting can lead to a desire. Tasting can lead to say, oh, that's something that's nice. I would like to partake in that. I would like to have something to do with that. I would like to have a part of that, right? Tasting is not necessarily bad, but when tasting is all you do, it is insufficient, right? If, if you were starving to death and somebody laid out a buffet of food in front of you and you went around and you took a little taste and a little nibble of everything on the tray and then very carefully spit it all back out, would you gain any nourishment from it? No. Would you starve to death with a full table in front of you? Yes. And unfortunately, that seems to be what's happening in this culture. So I want to think with you about this idea of tasting, but more than that, I want to think with you about the Word's role in our lives. And I want to make sure that nobody walks away from here thinking that it's a bad thing to have the Bible available. Okay? There is great value in the Word. There is great value in having the Scripture available to us. And ultimately, even for a person who is not a believer, there is value in the Word of God. Because truth always works. Right? 
When God tells us something in His Word, He tells us something that is absolutely true. Applying the principles of God's words will produce the desired result to one degree or another. Gravity is a thing, right? It's always there, and you don't have to believe in the laws of science to be impacted by the law of gravity. You don't have to believe that God made the world the way that He made it in order to interact with it in the way that you have to because reality is reality, no matter what you want to pretend, okay? People can pretend all sorts of things, and the culture tells us that we must acknowledge their pretenses, but let me speak plainly to you. You don't have to. You shouldn't, because truth is truth. Lies are lies. And if you give credence to a lie, you become a partaker of it. You become complicit in it. So, all of this goes on to say that if somebody, for instance, takes to heart Jesus' command to treat others as they would like to be treated, will their life generally be better? As a rule, yes. If you treat people with kindness and treat people with dignity and treat people with care and treat people with grace, just like you want them to treat you in the same way that Jesus instructed us, you don't have to be a believer for that to yield positive results in your life. Okay? So the Word gives life, the Word gives light, and the Word has a degree of benefit even for unbelievers. But the Word's great value is in its unequivocal display of God. Because that's what the Word is designed to do. It's designed to teach us who God is. It's designed to teach us the reality of what God requires. It shows us His attributes. Okay, The Scripture, through the instruction of His law, tells us the nature of God. For instance, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Is it a behavioral instruction? Partly. What's its primary purpose? It points us to Christ. Galatians teaches us that the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. But underneath that, it also teaches us the character of God. God says thou shalt not steal because he is the giver of all things. God says thou shalt not lie because he is the truth and he hates lying. He says you shall not murder because he is the giver of life. He teaches us you will honor your father and mother because he is the source of all authority. And those human relationships are the relationships that teach us how to deal and interact with Him. The law of God teaches us you will honor the name and the character and the person and the worship of God because He is the only true being who is deserving of your worship. See, the law of God is given and it's very specific in its given because it teaches us exactly who God is. And so as we approach the Word, we take into account that it's showing us His work. It's showing us His attributes. It's showing us His law. It's also teaching us what He requires of us, right? That behavioral aspect of the Ten Commandments. Look at this. Turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, starting at verse 6, the prophet writes this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this sounds like a fairly simple set of rules. To do what is just, to love mercy, and to walk with humility before your God. It is through the word of God that we learn that none of us are capable of doing that at all. Even that simplest thing. Just to do what's just, right? Just stop there. What is justice? Justice is what is right in the sight of God, period. That's what's just. That's what's righteous. That's what's true. And it doesn't matter how man sees it. It matters how God sees it. That means that we are accountable for the entirety of his law. All ten of the big ten, if you will, must be maintained from the day that you're born until the day that you die in order to be doing what is just. How about loving mercy? Well, we love to receive mercy, but we're not so keen on giving it. Because we're all very careful to make sure that we receive what we think is our due. We're all very careful to make sure that we get what we think we are owed. Mercy, not really in us. And humility, please. (laughs) To walk humbly before your God. You understand that the root of all sin is really the idea that I think I should be God. I think I should be on his seat. And I think I should be the one making the rules. And if you don't understand that, you've not been paying attention to the culture at all. Because at the bottom of it, that's everything that's going on. Everybody is declaring that they are the ones who are in charge and they get to make the rules. Well, the scripture teaches us that this is not the case. And like I said before, reality is reality, regardless of how you feel about it, regardless of how you want to identify yourself or what you want to be seen as. Truth is truth and cannot be avoided. This is the idea of an absolute truth. This is a moral objective that God himself has set forth. And we are obligated to engage with his truth as if it is absolutely true, because it is. Okay? The word is what gives this to us. So the idea of tasting the word, the idea of taking in the word in any capacity, has the potential to yield benefits. It has the potential to bring good things into somebody's life because God himself will sometimes be pleased to open somebody's heart. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, starting at verse 63. Jesus speaking to his disciples said this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Now from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus said very plainly that the words of life that he was speaking were themselves that which would communicate life to his disciples. That the word of life being communicated to us in the scripture is what would call dead men to life. So the word is not something to be avoided simply because there's a lot of it out there. In fact, it's something to be pressed even more. Okay, Let's go back to the picture of a starving man seated at the table. The problem is not the food on the table. Right? The problem is his behavior of taking it in and putting it out. The problem is that he's not taking it in and drawing nourishment from it. So rather than looking at this issue and saying, well, if the scripture is creating a problem and people are tasting the word, then we need to find some other method so that they'll be engaged with us, that is a completely wrong approach. The truth is, they need to take in the word of God, because the word of God is what will bring life to dead men. The word of God is what will bring life to dead spirits. It is the communication of the gospel, and it is something that God himself uses to convert the soul of the hearer. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So when we proclaim the truth of God's word, we are doing something which is absolutely has the potential to be used of God to call the dead to life. Romans chapter 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the word of God, right? So the faith that is required to believe is given to us by the faithful proclamation of the word. God himself imparts faith through the word. It must be so. So this whole idea of the tasting of the word says, I'm going to be near it, I'm going to have the flavor of it on my tongue, but I'm not going to take it in. I'm going to hold it off at arm's length. I'm going to refuse to partake of it in any truth. And there comes with this an intellectual sort of assent. So there is this idea of those who taste without gain and those who eat with gain. So it begs the question, what is the difference? Well, the difference is in the person and in their response to it and in the mercy and the grace of God. Okay? Because the word itself being implanted in us can actually bring life. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, starting at verse 21. James writes this. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So it comes back to this idea of sitting at the table with the food in front of you and actually taking it in, drawing it into your body, thinking about it, dwelling on it. The implanted word means it's been given room to take root in your life. 
It is the implanted Word of God which begins to bring about change in people. It is the implanted Word of God which begins to alter the lives of those into whom it is implanted. But the work of doing this is something that is communicated by grace and by God's favor alone. So there are those who taste without gain. Right? Do you guys know who Herod was? Remember Herod in the scripture? Herod was the king during the days of Jesus and John the Baptist. And he had a problem with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, during the course of his ministry, spoke out against Herod marrying Herodias, who was Herod's brother's wife after Herod's brother died. He said it was unlawful for him to have her. It was unlawful for him to to take her as wife because a lot of reasons went on. And Herod didn't like this. Herodias didn't like this. And ultimately, Herod had John the Baptist arrested. And you guys know the story. Herodias' daughter went and danced for Herod and pleased him. And he said, I'll give you anything you want, up to half of my kingdom. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. So Herod, being essentially a coward, gave in, had John the Baptist executed. But right in the middle of that whole story, look with me at Mark chapter 6. There's this really interesting statement about Herod and his relationship with John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 20. Actually, we're just going to read verse 20. Mark chapter 6, verse 20, it says this. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. He protected him from his wife. Herodias wanted him killed the minute he was arrested. He protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So when he heard him, he he wrestled out what John was saying. He was perplexed by what John was saying. He was intrigued by what John was saying. He was tasting the truth of what John was saying. He heard him gladly, right? He engaged with his conversation, even though he didn't like this one particular point that John the Baptist had made. But in the end... What do we know about Herod? We know that he finally gave in and had John killed. And we know that he himself was found to be a wicked ruler and will be punished for that. We also understand that Judas, as we mentioned in John chapter 6, the betrayer of Christ. Is it safe to say that Judas had exposure to the word? Is it safe to say that Judas tasted a bit of what Jesus was saying? Almost certainly. But clearly, it never went into his heart. Clearly, it never grew in him. Clearly, it never changed him. And if we look back at um, 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, listen to Paul's warning to Timothy about false teachers within the church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. Paul writes this, he says, You have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life and purpose, my faith, long-suffering, love, persecutions, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul is pointing out that there is this element within the church who are teaching false things, who themselves have tasted the word and have just enough of the word of truth to deceive, to deceive others and to deceive themselves. But in the end, the word hasn't impacted their lives, hasn't changed their lives, hasn't had the work that it was supposed to do in them because they only tasted of it intellectually. They just dallied in it. They played with it. Enough to say, okay, if if the Bible says this, then I can twist it around to make it say that so that I can get what I want over here and support it with this scripture. And we've all seen this behavior. We've all seen people rip scripture, kicking and screaming out of context, to twist it up and make it say something that it never intended to say. Well, ultimately... This leads to people who will say, I believe in Jesus, but whose lives say, I don't. Right? Look at me at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 42. And I want you to see the pattern. Because the pattern holds true across the board. John chapter 12, starting at verse 42. It says this. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak... Just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So Jesus is giving us an insight into the authority of his word. And he's telling us that in the end, those who refuse to take his word in and allow it to change their lives, those who are not changed by the word, will ultimately be judged by it. And the Pharisees who believed in him intellectually, who, yes, I know that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, but I'm not going to live it out. I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to obey because in the end, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the Pharisees. I'm afraid of being put out of the synagogue. I'm afraid of being hated. I like being popular. I love the praise of men. And it's more important to me that I am honored by men than I'm honored by God. These words are what was going on in the hearts of the Pharisees. These ideas are what was going on in the hearts of those who intellectually understood that everything the Scripture said is right. And even to the point of saying the Scripture clearly point out that this man Jesus is the promised Messiah. But I'm not going to acknowledge it. I'm not going to have my life changed by it because that change could be costly. That change could be painful. That change could be damaging. Therefore, I'm going to continue to walk in the same way that I've always walked 
And in the end, fear silenced them. They loved the praise of men. In other words, their pride. They did not believe him. They intellectually understood it. They could lay it out in their minds. They could look at the facts and say, yes, Jesus ticks all the boxes, but I don't believe it. Because if they had actually believed it, what would have happened? They would have followed him, right? They would have done what he said. As James says, the man who looks into the law of God and walks away without doing it is like a man who looks into the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Right? This is the guy that walks down his bedroom floor at night and sees somebody in the mirror and calls the cops because there's an intruder in his house. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was just you. You forgot what you look like. (laughs) Right? That that man is, is unfortunately many in this culture today. And in the end, the word of God will be what judges them. There are those who will not believe the word of God. But one day, they will. Because truth is truth. God's word is always God's word. It is always true. It is always right. It is always accurate. It is always on point. Our obligation as followers of Christ is to set ourselves in such a way that we take in the word of God, obey the word of God, believe the word of God, trust what God tells us, and cast ourselves upon him. Because in the end, he is the only one who can be relied upon. This idea of just tasting the word, just taking a little bit of it, coming as close as I can get to not being near God, but not so far away that I feel like I'm out of the sun completely. Right? They're looking for that nice gray spot in the shade. That's not how we follow after Christ. That's not how we engage with the word of God. In the end, we must be a people who consume the Word of God because grace is what brings salvation. It is the work of God to pour out His Spirit over us and to allow grace to change us, to change us into the likeness of Christ, to make us a people after His own heart. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Paul writes this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify his own special people, zealous for good works." Speak these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Do you know what the secret is to not allowing people to despise you or at least not to allow their despite to have an impact? You begin by not despising the things that you say. You begin by saying, the word of God is the word of God. It is truth without compromise. And I will proclaim it faithfully accurately and adamantly. I will declare that the truth of God is the only truth that matters. Not what any person thinks. Not the opinions of man. Not the preference of a culture. 
To, to declare the truth of God's word is exactly the opposite of simply to taste it. And beloved, if we're going to follow after Christ, it's not enough to just be near the word. It's not enough to just have a little bit of the flavor of it. We have to take it in. We have to draw it deep inside of us. We have to know the wholeness of it. Because in the end, if we will not do this, we will lose what we have already. Okay? How many of you, when you were young children in Sunday school, memorized Bible verses? How many of you can remember all of them that you memorized? How many of you can remember any of them that you memorized, except John 3.16? We'll exclude that one. And John 11.17 doesn't count either. Jesus wept. Doesn't even count. Not there. <laughs> right? You get my point? If you don't use it, it's gone. If you don't commit yourself to following what it says, it no longer has the power in your life that it once did. So if you're going to not be merely a taster of God's word, but a partaker of it, so that it impacts you and grows into you and changes your life and changes the dynamic of everything that you are, then you must treat with his word as if it actually has power and authority and is the truth that it declares itself to be. In the end, our position to the word is very simply defined in one word. Slave. We are slaves to the word of God. I do not have the right or the option to ever look at the word of God and say, yes, I know it says this, but I prefer this. Period. If I'm going to say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, then I must engage with the truth that he told us that if I will not believe what he said, I will be judged by what he said nonetheless. Because his word is the dividing line of truth. Amen. Nothing else has that power. And nothing else will save us. Nothing else can change us. It is this idea of faith being mixed with the word. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Because in the end, not everybody believes. Not everybody who hears the word is changed. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore... Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So what's the main difference then, according to the writer of Hebrews, between those who simply taste the word and those who partake of it and have lives changed by it? In those who are changed, the word is mixed with faith. Now, lest anybody misunderstand, the faith that is mixed with the word is not something intrinsic to you. It is the grace of God which gives faith. It is the grace of God which imparts faith to us and allows us to believe what he tells us. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who does that work? God. It's his working. 
It's his outworking. It's his impartation of faith to us. We are saved by faith, and that is not of yourselves, according to Ephesians chapter 2. It is the gift of God. It requires obedience, and it requires obedience from the heart. But it also requires us to retain the things that we have been given. I've always had a problem misplacing things. I'm I'm not a terribly organized person. I try really hard to be organized, and I fail really spectacularly. But the older I get, the more I find I lose things. I just had that right here. Where in the world did it go? And I'll spend, seems like hours, walking around in circles, looking for something that is right in front of me that I knew I had in my hand just a minute ago, but now I can't find it. Some, yeah, in my pocket, on my head, tucked behind my ear, right? It's ridiculous. Let me be very plain. That behavior will kill you in spiritual things. You must retain what you have been given, which means you must work at retention. You must treasure God's word. Proverbs 7, 1 says, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commands within you. It protects against sin and it yields a good life. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. What is your chief defense against sin according to the scripture? The word of God being hidden in your heart. The treasuring up of God's word. Understand that he's talking about remembering what he says. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3 starting at verse 1. Solomon giving life instruction to his own children. It says this, My son, do not forget my law. Let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 20 says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to you, life to those who find them, and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of a life. So what does this tell us? tells us that the things that you treasure up in your heart, the things that you long for, the things that you love, those are the very things that will shape you. Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees, said, look, you guys are worried about all the unclean things that you put into your hands, into your mouths. He said, your man is not defiled by what goes into him. He is defiled by what comes out of him. Okay? And he was exactly referencing what Solomon is speaking about here in Proverbs chapter 4. Keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Where is your heart? On what is your heart fixed? On what is your heart stayed? On what is your heart settled and saying, this is my hope, this is my life, this is my passion. These are the things that I desire above all others. A person who merely tastes the Word of God can have a million answers to that question. But a man who partakes of the Word of God will only have one. My passion is my God. 
He is all I want. He is all I desire. He is all I trust. Amen. A man who knows the truth of who his God is will be changed by that truth. He will be altered by the experience of this God. It's not simply, oh, look, I brushed up against Jesus and I smelled good for just a little while and then my life went back into its old ways. Beloved, that man was never changed. The man who only tasted and never was altered, the man who only tasted and was never saved, was never saved. And this is exactly who the writer of Hebrews is talking about. But the problem that grows out of this is the man who tasted and was never changed, was never really altered. He was altered in a different way. He was hardened. And and that hardening makes it ever more difficult for that man to finally come to the knowledge of Christ. That hardening makes layer upon layer upon layer of callous and layer upon layer upon layer of armor And and that armor keeps us from seeking after God, keeps us from hearing Him. It keeps us out of His presence. Beloved, here's the thing. If you have tasted the Word of God, you have been given a great gift. Don't waste it by merely allowing it to be a taste. Instead, dive in. Fill your heart, fill your life, fill your plate, and eat it all, then go back for seconds. Make sure that everything you do is about knowing your God, about driving yourself towards Him, about knowing exactly who He is, because it requires diligence, and it requires taking heed of your soul. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses giving his final instruction to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land, gives them this instruction. Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 7, he says this. What great nation has that, I'm sorry, what great nation is there that God has had God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has had such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? So he starts off by asking the question Has any other nation had these benefits? Has any other nation had these blessings? Has any other nation been chosen out by God for God to be among them like He was Israel? In that day, the answer to that question is absolutely not. And then he goes on to say this, Take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Teach them to your children and to your grandchildren, especially concerning the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Look, the people of Israel saw God do wonders for 40 years. Now the children, there were some here who were alive for the Red Sea. Okay? Nobody over the age of 20 was allowed to enter into the promised land who was there when they first got there three years after the exodus. Okay? That means that there are people there who are in their 50s who would remember the Red Sea. They would remember the voice of God at the mountain. But all of them there saw great miracles. They remembered being fed the manna. 
They remembered being given water from the rock. They remembered how their clothes for 40 years had not worn out. Their shoes had not grown thin. God had preserved them for 40 years in the wilderness. They had seen the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. They had heard the voice of God. They had seen fire come out from the altar and consume Aaron's sons for offering profane fire. They had seen the ground open up and consume those who had become idolaters. They had seen the fiery serpents. They had gazed upon the brazen serpent and been healed of their wounds. They knew. They knew the truth of who God was. And still, Moses gives them this instruction. Be diligent to take heed to your heart and pay attention to the things that you have been told. Pay attention to the things that you have learned. Because if you do not, you will forget. Now, if they were in danger of forgetting, having seen all that they saw, how much danger are we in of forgetting? When all we have is the Word of God written out and the Spirit of God indwelling in us. But it seems that so often when we don't set our mind to remember, it passes away. We can stand on the highest spiritual mountaintop possible and in just a moment, on the smallest turn of a screw, we find ourselves plummeting to the depths of despair. We find ourselves forgetting all of God's goodness to us. We find ourselves forgetting His faithfulness. We find ourselves feeling as if nothing in the world will ever be right because this moment is wrong. Beloved, it's faithlessness. And God calls us to remember Him, calls us to be diligent, calls us to press ever so strongly after Him. Because in the end, if we will not press after him, we will suffer for it. Because Jesus himself said, use it or lose it. Believe it or not, look at Luke chapter 8. It is not just, okay, it's a paraphrase, but it's there. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 16. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but he sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. Therefore, verse 18, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And to whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Right? So the man who seems to have spiritual knowledge, the man who's tasted the Word of God but never took it in, the man who's brushed up close to the truth of God's Word but never been changed by it, in the end, all he seems to have is just that. It's just an assemblance. It's just a pretense. And in the end, what he seems to have will be taken away from him. Because what we must recognize is the truth that we, as followers of Christ, will put on Christ irrevocably, 
absolutely without question, every single person who belongs to Christ will be transformed into the likeness of Christ to one degree or another. There is no such thing as somebody getting saved and remaining the same person all the days of their life. It doesn't happen. And a person who wants to pretend that it happened is deceiving themselves. We will be made like unto Christ. Now there are varying levels of maturity and for one man he will grow in great grace and put on spiritual things and he will become a giant of the faith and other men will not become like that in the eyes of men. But God knows what he's doing and he is working out faithfully in the lives of every single one of his children. But I can promise you this. I can promise you this in the authority of God's word. Every single person who belongs to Christ will grow. It is the principle of life that it grows. Period. So those who hear and do not take it in, do not grow, they do not have what they think they have. So take heed how you hear. That's where Jesus started out. Pay attention to how you're hearing. If you're only hearing casually, if you're only hearing because it's convenient, if you're only hearing because somebody drugged you and and made you sit, (laughs) not drugged, but drug you here, and made you sit, if that's the only reason you're hearing, then there's a problem. And you're not going to retain the things that you are hearing. You're not going to grow from them. You're not going to benefit from them. If you're here because you want to hear the Word of God, then treasure and esteem the Word. Understand that God gives light for the good of the receiver. He gives light so that you will be changed by it. Be sure that you have been faithful with what you have been given. Because in the end, to neglect the gift means loss. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed, there's that word again, to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received its just reward, how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which the first began to be spoken of by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own word. So he says, take earnest heed, lest you drift away. Now that idea of drifting is a casual sort of thing. It's that idea of, well, I'm not really doing anything against God, but I'm not really doing anything for Him either. I'm just going to go where life leads me. I'm going to let the current take me where it will. I'm a casual kind of guy and it doesn't really matter. I'm not really too concerned with steerage. I'm just going. That's drifting. And in the end, the current will take you where it wants to go, and the current of that life will always take you away from God. And in the end, it amounts to neglect. He says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we will not give earnest heed to it, if we will not pursue Him, if we will not set ourselves to grow in grace and to understand what God wants of us, to become mature men and women of God, to become a people of the book, to become a people who not only taste the word, but take it in and grow thereby. How will we escape if we neglect that salvation? We won't. That's it exactly. Because there is no other option. There is no plan B. 
There is no other way for anyone to get to heaven, or Jesus is a liar. For Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. There is no other option. This is not a new thing. In Jeremiah, God himself spoke to the people and asked this very pointed question. Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll consider this briefly and then we'll be done. Jeremiah chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? So, have the pagan nations become pagans after other gods? It doesn't happen, right? The the nation that pursues Baal pursued Baal. They wouldn't take on a different god. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So two sins contained in this neglecting of so great a salvation. We abandon the God who is. We abandon the truth that he gives to us. We abandon the power of his word. And instead we make up for ourselves fables. Things to please itching ears. We hew for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water but say to ourselves, that will satisfy me. In the end, beloved, if we will neglect this salvation, we will pay the price for neglecting it. If we will abandon our God, all we're doing is giving testimony to the fact that all we had ever done was tasted him lightly and we're not his. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us grace. I pray, Lord, that you would show us the truth of our hearts and that where we are a people who love you, confirm that in us in every way. But Father, if there are any in the sound of my voice from any of the mediums by which they'll hear it, who do not love you, Father, who are not yours, who have only tasted of the word, only dabbled in it, I pray that you would show them the true condition of their heart. Cause them to turn from their sin and to turn unto Christ and be saved. Lord, in the midst of all of these things, I pray that these people will be a people of your word, growing in it, changed by it, by your grace and for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. For the sake of his glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.